Have you thought about donating one of your organs? Well, today we're going to talk about EMS Gives Life. I'm Rob Lawrence. This is EMS One Stop, sponsored by Blink. Welcome to another edition of EMS One Stop. Today we're talking about EMS Gives Life and joining me to have this discussion is Christine Fichter who is the Executive Director of EMS Gives Life and Will Lindbergh who is from the New England Organ Bank but uh, has a deeper backstory as we'll find out. So guys welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. It's good to be here Rob. Thank you. Thank you. And so let's sort of get on. First of all, let's talk about EMS Gives Life, a 501c3. It's a new uh, charitable organization that started up in the public safety community. So, Christine, why don't you just start us off and give us a, a little bit of background to the to EMS Gives Life, first of all? Uh, EMS Gives Life, like you said, is brand new. Um, we really just got started in May. And uh, it's a nonprofit organization that promotes, supports, facilitates living and deceased organ donation within the EMS and first responder community. It's very much tied to Will's story, which I'm very excited for him to share. But it was created for first responders by first responders to support those who are considering giving the gift of life through organ donation. Talking of the backstories, then this all started with you, Will, and uh, you are an organ donor. You were at the time a paramedic uh, with Pro-EMS in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, so take us right back to where you had the first notion that this could even be done. Well, you know, there was some point early in life where I had come across the idea of kidney donation. Um, I had thought, you know, that was kind of neat um, and then, you know, moved on with my life. But, um, you know, working as an EMT and then eventually a paramedic, um, Kind of brought me back into contact with that with that issue right i mean i think a lot of emts are involved in taking patients to and from dialysis and, and even if that's not a regular part of what you do um you know patients who need a transplant are really sick and often um you know call 911 for related issues so you know working at pro i had a number of patients who would tell me um about sort of their story, how they were waiting for an organ, how they were looking for that transplant to change their life. Um, and that definitely kind of moved it forward uh, in my mind a little bit. Uh, and then one night I was actually working out in Pro's Emerson service area. Um, and we got sent for a, a sinkable. Um, and when we arrived, you know, our patient was conscious, ANO times four, uh, no real persistent complaints, everything checked out. Um, we were just taking them into the hospital uh, and there wasn't much else to do besides talk. And um, the patient started telling me about how much they had been struggling recently with their liver failure, um, not only medically, but also how, you know, this patient had kind of a fraught relationship with their, their daughter and the rest of their family and how their, their sickness was only complicating that. And this, this really pulled at my heartstrings because um, you know, when I was younger, I had lost my father to pancreatic cancer. Um, so not only was I a, a little bit sensitive to this sort of you know, father 
and child kind of relationship issues. But, um, you know, this patient was the exact same color of jaundice yellow that, that my dad had been just a few days before he died. Um, so he was definitely, you know, unknowns to him and really pushing my buttons. And when I went home from that shift, um, you know, it, it just stuck with me. And I started trying to learn more about liver failure um, and read about transplant. And, um, you know, it just, it sort of branched out from there. You felt compelled to put yourself forward, I guess. And so, I mean, at the time, we didn't have EMS Gives Life. Um, so how did you go about finding out, you know, the information and the pathway to ultimately becoming a donor? Well, uh, there are a couple of different sources. You know, originally, um, I just started, you know, doing a little bit of Googling online. Uh, I found a couple of online communities for recipients and donors where they were um, able to answer questions. And um, I started looking at the websites for the transplant programs in my area, um, which were actually surprisingly thin on information. Uh, and then after that, really, the next step was to start making phone calls. Um, and that was where I started realizing that this might be a little bit more complicated than I initially inspected. I'm sure that by now people listening are going to go, but hang on, you're still with us, Will. You know, we always think about donors being, uh, shall we say, not with us. The, the living donor thing is, is something that obviously PMS Gives Life as a charity will come on to. We'll talk to Christine again in a second about, you know, what, what the options are. But uh, so you've done your homework. Um, you'd found somewhere that would do it for you. And so what happened next? Well, so I, uh, you know, I called up um, some of the areas, uh, some of the air local area hospitals in Boston where I live. Um, and as soon as I mentioned that I was interested in uh, living liver donation, um, I was kind of ran into a, a lot of confusion. Um, not only did the people on the phone not offer that um, at their hospital, but they didn't even really know where to, to point me um, but eventually, you know, as I mentioned, you know, looking online, talking to different people who've been involved in the community, uh, I ended up finding out about uh, New York Presbyterian, the Well Cornell campus, um, where they were actually doing a decent amount of living liver donation um, and also doing laparoscopic or at least partially laparoscopic living liver donation. So I went ahead and approached them and, you know, it all started out with a phone call. But eventually, uh, I had to actually make the, the trip from Boston over to New York so that they could start working me up as a potential donor. Um, and that included things like, you know, abdominal imaging, blood draws, EKGs, and uh, also included a, a talk with a, a psychiatrist so that they could kind of vet where I was coming from, what my incentives were, and make sure that everything was, uh, you know, uh, above board. So you've gone through the process. Um... And then the day itself arrives. Uh, talk us through, you know, what they do. And then, of course, the recovery. So, um, you know, I remember having a fairly sleepless night the day before. But, uh, you know, we drove into uh, Manhattan um, to the Well Cornell campus. And they do all your pre-op. Uh, they put you in a gown, which is when you really start to feel a little bit vulnerable about the whole thing. And then I remember actually walking down to the OR, which seemed a little strange. You know, everyone else got, got a ride in a bed. Um, and I just walked right into the place. But 
it, it's it's a long procedure. Uh, I mean, I was obviously out for the whole thing, but it's it's really complicated um, because you know they were working mostly laparoscopically, um, which means that they have very limited view of what they're doing. But it's delicate work because they are cutting through your liver, dividing it. And there's all sorts of blood vessels and bile ducts inside that tissue that they have to be very careful um, not to you know, nick or cut inappropriately as they're trying to sort of separate those, those segments out. Um, and in my case, they were planning to remove about 18% of my liver. Um, they had chosen a pediatric donor, so they were picking a fairly small segment out um, compared to if I was donating to uh, an adult recipient. Now, we'll talk about the recipient in a minute, but let's just go back to the fact that you're doing this all on your own. And there comes there has to come that point where you walk into your boss's office and say, excuse me, I'm not going to be in for the next one, two, three <laughs> days, weeks. Um, and uh, the boss being uh, Bill Mergendahl, the uh, chief executive of uh, Pro-AMS in Cambridge, Massachusetts, you walk in and what did he say to you? Well, I think uh, knowing Merg, right, I'd actually mentioned it to uh, one of our other administrators. And then, of course, I, I got the summons from him to come into the office. <laughs> and, you know, I think on one hand, he treated me a little bit like he thought I was nuts, but at the same time, you know, wonderfully nuts. And he was incredibly supportive, a little bit upset, I guess, that I tried to sort of sneak it past him. But, you know, immediately he was on board and sort of understood why I was interested in doing this and also what the significance could be sort of on a, on a greater scale. That's one of the things, and, and let's bring Christine back in, because of course what Bill did was to support you through the process. Clearly there's surgery time, there's recovery time, and then there's light duty time. This was one of the origins, I think, of, of the charity, Christine. And so Absolutely. obviously what you're seeking to do is not only to attract people to become donors, but to educate leaders, bosses, employers as to, you know, how they can either support or facilitate this. Absolutely. You know, I think that Will keeping it to himself and only getting found out, uh, you know, close to uh, surgery day. Right. But I think when the conversation started to happen at Pro-AMS and other places, um, you know, three things kind of came up is one is I, I, I would do that. I didn't even know that was a possibility. That's, you know, that's fascinating. That's amazing. Um, so people really receptive. And then the other thing was, I don't know how to go about doing it. Um, I wouldn't even know where to start. And then the third thing was there are obstacles that I have to get around. Um, I don't know that I could afford to do that personally. I don't know that I could take the time off and, you know, and so I think that's where EMS Gives Life was born and how its mission was developed is around really those three things, awareness, donor support, and employer education, because employers really are the silent partner in, in this process. They really can be game changers for an employer, an employee living donor who wants to make this decision. And now a quick word from our brand new sponsor, Blink. Over to you, George. Given the current workforce challenges, retention is now more important than ever. By ensuring that field staff feel appreciated, informed and listened to, Blink's all-in-one employee app is currently helping EMS providers across the nation to improve their retention rate significantly. With Blink, frontline employees are able to communicate with their managers, receive company updates and gain access to key systems like payroll and scheduling, 
all within an easy-to-use mobile app. If you're interested in finding out how Blink can help your organization to improve employee retention and engagement, then please visit www.joinblink.com forward slash demo to learn more. This is George Monk from Blink. Thank you for listening. If you are enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. And you can also follow EMS One Stop and also uh, any other EMS One product on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Stitcher and Spotify. Um, if you have a comment, please contact us at the show at emsone.com. Uh, leave your ideas, make your suggestions. Uh, we'd love to hear them and read them, or indeed make a comment in the uh, the main section at emsone.com. Coming back to you, Will, the organisation uh, realised what you were doing. You had the operation. What happened in terms of the length of time for your recovery? And obviously, you then coming back to work. So I'd been warned ahead of time that I was going to need to stay about a month in New York um, during my sort of initial recovery. And then that I was going to need at least six weeks of uh, sort of light duty after that, um, where I wasn't lifting things or, you know, lifting patients, etc. And the actual recovery itself, the way it played out was... <laughs> Uh, I mean, it wasn't at all what I expected. It was it was this complete roller coaster where, you know, basically three four days, I felt fantastic. I mean, I was up doing stairs in the hospital. You know, they they kept me an extra day, but it was it was pretty hard to justify it at that point. So I, I got out after four days. You know, I walked back to um, the Port Authority bus terminal and uh, went back to New Jersey. And then the next day I went out and walked 11 miles, went across the Brooklyn Bridge. You know, I, I felt good, but it didn't last. Um, you know, pretty quickly, I started realizing that I'd kind of, you know, overdone it. And I ended up having abdominal pain um, and had to actually go back into the hospital a couple of times. Um, I had to deal with a, a bile leak as well as sort of a dislodged drainage tube. Um, and then ultimately, I also uh, ended up with a fever and, and flu-like symptoms. So it, it was strange because one day I'd feel great. And then, you know, I'd have an issue that I had to go get addressed. But uh, eventually, you know, after that month, everything kind of evened out. And I was able to go back to Boston and felt pretty normal. I mean, again, I, I need to be careful lifting and stuff like that. So I needed to stay off the truck. Um, but I was able to go into work and help out with training, um, you know, kind of onboarding new employees, uh, as well as dealing with some sort of like logistics and equipment issues around the base. But I think the key thing is that uh, the employer facilitated you doing that because of course this is not like you know when if you have an appendectomy or you have to have an emergency procedure inevitably you're going to be out this is totally elective totally volunteer and obviously having the support of the employer is absolutely key um christine what resources is ems gives life.org offering uh, employers i think it it really is important to say that it would be on a case-by-case -case basis. There isn't one size fits all because there's not one type of employer. Um, there's people who are in private employers. There are uh, municipalities, uh, big and large companies, small and volunteer companies, all different sizes. Um, so it would be really tailored to the employer and we'd be happy to work with them one-on-one -on -one and with the uh, potential donor. And 
each state is different as well. Uh, so some states have family medical leave act that would cover this um, for disability purposes and some do not. Uh, it depends on their insurance. So we would like to work with employers to be creative, um, to be very strategic in how we help them so that they can support their employee to make this choice. Also, we should just draw attention to the to the reorganized website, emsgiveslife.org, that covers a lot of the issues that we're talking about today and also talks about uh, other types of donation. We're not just talking about liver. Um, we're talking about uh, living kidney, living liver donation, and, of course, blood stem cell donation. So there are many ways that individuals can donate in order to give life and to save a life. That's right. Not everybody is going to be a living organ donor. Um, and that's not the only way one can help. So there's more than 100,000 people on the national transplant waiting list, probably closer to 110,000. And in any given year, about 40,000 get transplants. So if you're doing the math and you're thinking about you know, how many people are added to the list every year, I think that's one every nine or 10 minutes. Um, when you do the math, you realize there's a really critical need. And uh, living donation is obviously one way that can help, uh, help people get off that transplant list and uh, save their lives. But it isn't the only way. And you know what Will's doing now for work with uh, deceased organ donation is obviously another way. And making sure that everybody is on an organ donor list um, so that their wishes are known at the time of their death that they choose to be an organ donor is really important to us. Um, as well as you mentioned stem cell blood bank, people commonly know it as bone marrow donor. Um, that is a registry as well that we'd love to see everybody on so that um, you may not be called right away, you may not be called ever, but when someone's looking for a transplant, uh, the diversity and uh, size of that database helps people find their matches more quickly so that they don't have to do donor drives. So those are also both critically important ways that people can get involved. Coming back to you, Will, you knew that there was going to be a pediatric recipient uh, of uh, clearly of your donation. Eventually, you got to meet them and uh, it got some pretty impressive national coverage. So why don't you kind of take us to the, the natural conclusion of your story? Shortly after my donation, the sort of public relations staff at the hospital reached out and asked if I would be willing to meet my recipient and his family. And, you know, I was, I was enthusiastic about it. I really did want to meet them. Um, and more than that, I would never say no if they wanted to meet me. But uh, this all was happening as sort of, you know, this COVID pandemic was starting to kick off. Uh, so we ended up not being able to meet at all for quite a while. And then when we did meet, we ended up meeting um, remotely or virtually on Zoom. Uh, actually, we were approached by um, Good Morning America and uh, we were on their Thanksgiving Day show. It was, it was a wonderful opportunity. I mean, there was no better reward for me than to see Ian, um, who's this adorable kid, and he was so healthy and energetic. And it was just this huge relief to see that he was really okay. Um, and you know, I also got to, to briefly meet his parents. They were fantastic. 
Um, and we've been able to communicate a little bit uh, ever since, though, obviously, with everything that's going on in this country, um, we still haven't had a, an opportunity to meet in person. I watched that reunion on the GMA. Uh, I think they've invited you to the cookout. I'm not sure you've got, the, uh, <laughs> got there yet, right? No, not yet. Um, actually, Dia just gave me a call the other day. I have, to, I have to call her back. So we'll see if we're, we're able to put that together eventually. And I'm sure that's a powerful bond that will, will last forever. And, you know, and I think it beautifully brings the story to, to a, a great conclusion. Now, you yourself moved on from being the paramedic at Pro EMS to the job that you're doing now, which is totally related. So what are you up to now? Uh, so right now I'm working as a uh, organ surgical recovery coordinator for the New England Organ Bank. Um, it's a little bit of a hybrid role where partly I'm doing um, logistics and coordinating um, for the recovery of um, typically deceased donor organs. Uh, but there's also sort of this hands-on portion where I get to go into the OR, scrub in, um, and help sort of prepare and, and package these organs or place the kidney on perfusion pumps, that kind of thing. It's been really nice to sort of have this opportunity to, to stay involved in transplant. I was going to say, you, you seem absolutely suited to this. And clearly you are seeing, again, you know, that kind of circle of life continuing from, you know, the, the donor's organs into a, a recipient, which must be an amazing feeling to have every day of the week. Yeah, it's, it's amazing work. There are lots of amazing people involved who are, you know, just working so incredibly hard 24-7 um, to save as many lives as they can. Christine, emsgiveslife.org. What's your message to people that may be listening either as an employer or indeed a potential donor? What do you want to say to them? First, I want to say before we get to that, I just want to say that the video of Will and Ian and his family is remarkable and I encourage everybody to watch it. We have it on our website. And so uh, if you take a look there, I challenge anyone to watch it without a tear in their eye. But to your question, uh, Rob, I think that my message is really that there's a lot of ways to support uh, organ donation. And one is obviously becoming a living kidney or liver donor, and somebody needs you today. But if that's not the option, then join a registry, both the Organ Donation Registry, Donate Life America is a great place to join. Um, and also the Stem Cell Registry, Be the Match is a great place. Those people need you maybe tomorrow, but also just help us spread the word. I think that's really something everyone can do. We're on social media, on Facebook and Twitter. Um, we have a website. Share it with your friends, your colleagues, you know, just talk about it. Uh, you know, I didn't know much early on. I was just saying this to Will earlier. I didn't, you know, I didn't know a lot about organ donation and it really is fascinating. And I think that a lot of people are affected by it. And so I, I hope to encourage people to start conversations, um, share our posts so that we can expand our reach. And uh, it really just supports our mission. Will, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I mean, do you have any final words of encouragement for those that might be considering doing what you did? You know, I think the biggest, the reason why EMS Gives Life makes so much sense to me, partly is because obviously the mission of, of first responders everywhere is to save life. But it also goes back to, you know, the principle that I was taught uh, when I started becoming a volunteer firefighter um, and getting into this whole business in the first place was the idea that you risk nothing to save nothing 
but you'll risk a lot to save a lot, right? That, that basic risk assessment. And that's why this was such a no-brainer for me. It was low risk, but I could still save a life. And I think that's something that'll really appeal to people in this community. Um, you know, we take risks at work all the time and they're not always warranted. Whereas this is, is such an obvious need and an overall a really safe thing to do. So I, I hope more people look into it and get involved. I was just going to add, Will did this alone and that's remarkable, but we would really like to help someone along this process so that the next person doesn't have to do this alone. And really how you get started in the process really affects the outcomes and the protections you get as a donor. So we're hoping that people will reach out to us so that we can help them through the process and share what we know so that they don't feel alone. And just even if they're just exploring the idea, regardless of the outcome, uh, we'd like to be that support. Christine, thank you for that. So uh, we, we know the website, but Christine, how can we get hold of you directly if we want to? Uh, you can email me directly. Um, Christine, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-E dot Fichter, F-I-E-C-H-T-E-R at emsgiveslife.org. So you can email me directly anytime. Excellent. And I hope people do. I hope we see you around the conference circuit. I hope we hear a lot more from EMS Gives Life. So Will and Christine, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at UKRobL1. The one is very important. Or find me over on LinkedIn. As I said earlier, if you have a comment, please leave it in the comment section uh, at ems1.com. Um, that's it for today. Uh, guys, thank you so much. Thank you, Rob. I've been Rob Lawrence. We've been talking about EMS Gives Life. And until next time, bye for now. Bye.